This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Welcome to the Athletic Evolution Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with VJ Stanley. VJ is the founder and president of Balanced Excellence. In his youth, he was a three-sport varsity athlete who then went on to play junior hockey for the Rochester Monarchs and pursued his passion at Clarkston University. Unfortunately, he sustained two concussions in one week, which ended his career after only one game. After the injury, at age 23, he became a high school coach at Fairpoint High School in Rochester, New York. He was the youngest high school hockey coach in Monroe County history. At Fairpoint, he set 13 records. VJ went on to become the head coach at the University of Rochester, coaching for 21 years. VJ founded Balanced Excellence as an answer to his family and friends' constant questions about the stress associated with children's participation in youth sports. He became an author and public speaker with over 30 years of experience with youth and high school sports injury prevention, as well as providing leadership, insights, and consulting for long-term athletic development. Mental health and the pure enjoyment of playing youth sports for fun are a huge part of Balanced Excellence. So welcome to the podcast, VJ. It's great to have you on today. Thanks for having me. So for those who haven't come across you and your work, give us a bit of an understanding of your own kind of background and context. How did you first get involved in sport and how has that led to the, the kind of coaching career you've had? Well, my dad was a semi-pro baseball player. So sports and my older brothers were all into sports. So I started playing sports at five, every sport, multiple. And uh, my oldest brother then took me to a hockey tryout in seventh grade and I got cut from a no cut team and went from there to get on the team as a goalie left goaltending when Bobby Orr hit me in the throat with a puck at Halliburton Hockey Haven uh, he just flipped it very tiny thing Bernie Perrant the Hall of Fame goalie because I went there as a goalie uh, said when he comes at you dive and I did and so he flipped the puck anyway I ended up at Bobby Orr's arms and called my dad and said, that's it, I'm not a goalie anymore. And played all three, played three sports in high school, but hockey seemed to give me the biggest booth. I got recruited to play division one hockey, uh, played one game at Clarkson College. I had had six concussions before I got there. And when I got there, I got two in a week and that ended my career. Um, there's no cure for concussions. And from there, I got asked uh, at a diner if I wanted to coach a little youth team. And then from there, I got asked if I wanted to coach a high school team. 
And then from the high school team, I got asked if I wanted to coach a college team. And then I wrote three books and here we are. So obviously your, your coaching career, I mean, in terms of playing career, start, stopped pretty young and your, your coaching career would have started pretty young, given you were sort of, was it mid-20s when it happened? Uh, no, I was 20 years old when it happened. I'm the youngest coach in the history of high school hockey here in uh, Rochester, New York, Monroe County. Hmm. Fantastic. So what, what, what was some of the, the kind of highlights of that coaching career of going, you know, from, from high school to, to college? What, what are some of the things that stand out? Well, the, the biggest thing in high school, of course, because I was so young to the players was, and I tell coaches this all the time, is there is a huge difference between trust and respect. As important as respect is, trust is way more important. And that earning that trust with the honesty and the integrity uh, really helped me. And then in college, uh, I was 30 when I became a head coach. And the same thing just applied there. And then we recruited heavily. When you get to college, uh, Rob, it's 80% recruiting. Nick Saban didn't win a championship without having the best players on the team. Hmm. So you're in terms of the college career, how long, how many years were you involved in that, that level of performance? In, in playing? Well, in terms uh, of coaching. In, oh, coaching. 21 years. So a considerable amount of time to, to learn a few things. <laughs> I learned, I'm still learning, but yes, uh, I learned a tremendous amount. Um, and the number one thing, and I'll reiterate it through the whole podcast, is the number one thing is trust. And I'll just explain it to you and your listeners, is I'm my father's son, I'm my brother's brother. No matter how you put that, it's always true. It's a reciprocal truth. Wherever there is lightning, there's electricity. But wherever there's electricity, there isn't necessarily lightning and non-reciprocal truth. That's respect. Trust is reciprocal. You earn the trust and it's a two-way street. And I have found wh- whether it's in life or sports, if you have that integrity and you have that trust, um, you're going to do very well. I'm as anti-political as you could get, Rob. And as I talked to you before the podcast about what we're going through, I have the utmost respect for the office of the presidency of the United States. Toughest job or prime minister of england the toughest jobs in the world but it doesn't mean i trust the person who's in office or when i'm driving down the street i don't care if they have a mercedes uh, or what car they have i just want to trust that they don't cross the lane and hit me so this idea of trust is paramount in everything that i do in coach life my wife my kids Mm. my business what are the experiences or, or I guess other coaches that you've coached with or players that you, you've coached that have been pivotal in shaping your coaching practice of, of really hammering home that trust as a principle? Well, the, the first one is a guy when I was, again, I got cut from this no cut team and then I stopped playing goal and I got pretty good pretty quick. So I got called up to play at a higher level and the gentleman's name was Earl Muse. I, I, I remember my whole life. And he sat me down and he said, look, we're bringing you up to play. And he had a six pack of Coca-Cola in the locker room. And he said, would you like one? And I said, no, thanks. You know, I'm very nervous. I just want to play. And he said, you'll do just fine. And then the next guy was a gentleman by the name of Terry McAdam, 
and when I was really starting to play at a high level and he picked me for this um, team to play semi-pros and we got beat. And when we got beat, he pulled me aside. I scored a goal near the end and got slammed into the boards and didn't show any emotion, didn't nothing. And he said, that's what's going to help you at the next level. And then when I got to Clarkson, Jerry York never yelled at anybody, uh, the legendary uh, college coach. And then when I got into youth coaching, a guy by the name of Mr. Seathouse, um, all these old timers, Rob, taught me about integrity and trust. And always, always in the back of my mind, I got cut from a no cut team. And I think we've legislated as adults, the late bloomer for a large part out of sports. So we always kept the last spot on our team open to a walk-on. Mm -hmm. So how has your, your philosophy evolved over the those years? Have you always had that mentality or do, you know, yeah. as a younger coach, were you performance oriented and you've just changed or? No, no, it's always been this way. Um, I'm really different. And I, and I, I know that because the athletic directors that hired me told me, but I always thought that it was about the journey and that if you helped other players get better, that was better. Like we had a Sunday night pickup game outdoors uh, every Sunday in the winter at this oh, it's freezing cold park. And one time, one of the guys that we played with called me up and said, Hey, we've got a couple of guys that aren't very good that want to play. Can we bring them along? Well, heck yeah, we can. And it, it, and it, my dad instilled a lot of that in me in our family business. And this, this idea of winning at all costs, it really cheapens the victory. Um, and, you know, the championships I played and won on were fantastic. But you talk to a lot of coaches, they'll start talking to you about the upsets. They'll start talking to you about, you know, when this was down and we came back or this player hadn't played much and blossomed. So, yeah, I, I get the question a lot. Did my philosophy change? But even from the beginning, again, when I was hired to coach uh, this one high school team, the best player on the team came up to me as I was signing the, coming out of signing the contract with the athletic director. And he said, uh, I'm, on the, I'm on the first line in the power play. It's not anymore. He who plays best will play most. We'll see what happens. And so I've always had that philosophy in mind. Um, okay, when, when we're playing, I'm trying not to bore your listeners, but when I was playing in juniors, um, I finished second in the league in scoring. We're playing the last game of the season for the playoffs. I'm three points behind the leading scorer in the league. He's done. And I went to the coach before the game and I said, look, we got this guy, Steve Percy on our team who hasn't scored a goal all year. My winger is sick, can't play today. Put him on my, put him on my line. And my mom and dad, you know, even my older brothers, when we played all these sports, I was the youngest and the littlest. They would encourage me. They wouldn't, you know, beat me up um, mentally. Like we we're playing basketball. My brother was a star basketball, oldest star basketball player, seven years older than me. They would give me the ball and let me shoot. And so I transplanted this philosophy is if the weaker players get better, the whole team gets better. So why aren't we helping them? Why don't we have and embrace this inner team competition? 
Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I did I it right from the get go. So recently. Um, New Zealand kind of sport, a whole, a whole collaboration of, you know, the rugby, basketball, football, all of them kind of came to, together and released a statement, you know, against elitism in, in youth sport, which is essentially what you're saying. Yep. And I'm a huge fan of the All Black. Huge fan. They, they, they do so much with integrity, so much with class, so much with character. Uh, it's, it's heartwarming to know that even at the highest level of rugby, that there is a team that really, really talks about character and backs it up. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, when I coached as a college coach, we would tell the coaches that you, you develop a, a, a camaraderie with the coaches, a rapport, the high school and the, and the junior coaches. And I would tell them, if you don't want this boy to date your only daughter, don't send him to me, I'll cut him. And I lost my power play guy this one year and I went to this rink and there was my kid, left-handed shot, right side. I needed this kid badly, but I just had a bad feeling. And I happened to know the Zamboni driver. So I snuck in the back, 30 seconds to go in the game. His check scored the winning goal. He slammed the kids into the board. Told his coach, that's it, we're done. I needed this kid. It's, you can't do it. So what do, you, what do you think is for you the underlying driver or the why for for what you're doing now, obviously with coach education and, and like being that coach who's been in the game for a long time and wants to see things progress, you know, maybe better than they have done for the last decade or two. What's the driver for you there? Uh, threefold. Uh, the first one is the data. We, we do everything on science, psychology, and data. The data is overwhelming. 70% uh, of all the kids that play youth sports quit by 13, 60% quit within two years. Uh, the injury rates, uh, $1.2 billion was spent last year in the United States in overuse injuries. So to me, it, it, again, the first book that I wrote, Stop the Tsunami in Youth Sports, Achieving Balance, Excellence, and Health While Embracing the Value of Play for Fun is to get back to the root of youth sports, and that's fun. Because when you talk to the pros, Rob, they'll tell you, uh, and I've interviewed a bunch of them, you give, us, you give them a pickup game with nobody around and their buddies, they're in. These are millionaires. They're in. Let's play. Let's have fun. Yeah, it and we, seems to be we legislated as adults the fun out of out of sports. One hundred percent. Yeah, totally. That's what I was going to say. It seems to be one of the things that you know people pay a lot of lip service to, but when it comes to their coaching on a Tuesday night or a Monday night, it doesn't look like a whole lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can. I've worked with over five thousand kids, well over a hundred coaches. And there's always a reason to bench a kid. There's always a reason to try and win. I was working with a, we have a thing called the Christian Youth Organization. And I was working with a coach. Poor little girl was a goaltender, 12 years old. She got that nice bright jersey and the gloves and she was all excited. They were up three to nothing. The other team scored two goals. Now this is Christian youth. The coach yelled at her and took her out of the game. Now, we just happened to be in the parking lot next to his car when he came out with my daughter and I, and, and she, had, she was on the winning team, and he was berating his daughter. And, and it was like, you, you just missed the whole point here. But I want to say this unequivocally. The coaches and the parents are only partially responsible. The pressure put on them by organizations, by status, other adults, by all by money, money fuels so much of this is an uh, evolving cause. 
And what we're trying to do is just take one step away from it and say, hey, here's another way to do it. It may not be the way for you, but we're getting more and more people jumping on board. It's interesting because it seems like, I guess the underlying theme for a lot of stuff is, is that the end goal is a pro contract or a college scholarship or something, you know, yep. playing something for the joy of playing it seems to be not as popular as it used to be. Right. And the idea, first of all, only 1% play at the division one level college and 1% of 1% play the pro the average pro life athletes contract or um, how many years he, he or she plays is 3.4 years. The average salary in that level, when you put everything together, is only 110,000. It's a lot of money, but it's only for three years. So what has happened is nobody wants to get out of line. Nobody wants to say, you know, if I don't put my son or daughter in this team, they're going to fall behind. And then the other thing happens is that people think they deserve a return on their investment, no matter what they say, it costs money. So they want a return on their investment. And this starts to feed the beast. And then you have, which I always call the culmination, the rules apply to everybody but me. Yeah, that guy's definitely doing it wrong. They, they shouldn't be, no, no, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. But he really, she really needs it. Oh, and I do wanna add one more thing. And it's, I told you before, I'm a little controversial. Used to be the moms were the ones that straightened us all out. Now some of the moms are crazier than the men. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely true. So tell us about balanced excellence. Tell us about, I mean, obviously I know, you know, the first iteration was frozen shorts, which I love the name. Yep. When, I, when I understood the description, I thought at first I thought, what does the name mean? But when you explained it, I thought it was fantastic. But what's, what's the purpose of balanced excellence? What, what's the idea? We believe that, that sports should be a microcosm of life, point blank. And balanced excellence, it should be the goal in life. So what we say, it's not our goal to decide when, how, or even if the light goes on. Our goal is just keep flipping the switch. If we can get people to internalize this and, and instead of accommodating it, if we can get people to see, well, wait a minute, this is, this is good, then our, our, our business motto is peace of mind is victory. We have this special handshake. I don't know if people can see this but the peace sign and the victory sign. And so when we shake hands, we cross them. And when you do that, then we know you get it. And we know you're part of this group. It's just quiet. It's not over the top or anything, but it then lets everybody know that balance, let's just take a deep breath. And as I like to say, if you're not chuckling or at least smiling at a 10 year old youth sports event, you need to step back. Because again, I, I say it to you multiple times, they all suck at 10. Some just suck less than others. And you know <laughs> why? Because they're 10. They're supposed to. God, I don't even think I could chew bread and, and walk at the same time. Yeah, it's funny how there's often a lot of egos, things that are incredibly misplaced, don't they? You think it really is this under 10 competition that important to you as a fully grown adult? <laughs> But yeah, and I agree 100%. But the caveat to that is that these people get wrapped up in it before they even know it. They're mostly well-intentioned. It's like I'm working with a group of parents now and um, I'm convincing them all not to coach. And every one of them, mom and dad, you know, look at me like I'm crazy. And I said, you're getting into the coaching so you can protect your son or your daughter from getting screwed over. You, you don't want to do that. 
part of the life lessons they're going to learn are going to be on these teams and applicable. Now, one of the things, again, that separates me from most people is that, and if your son or daughter isn't getting playing time and, and you don't, or you're not happy with what's going on, take them off the team. This thing about the stigma of quitting, no, because the best players get to keep playing. They're not going to miss you. And if you're really good, you are playing. So just go out and have fun. And we are a huge proponent of pickup games. Let the kids with all this technology now go to a park, one parent for safety always. And then just let them play. Let them play for an hour. And it's going to be horrible. And it's going to be messy in the beginning because 70% of their lives are based on instruction now. So let's, again, balance, balance. We're not trying to sway everything one way or the other. We're trying to get it back into the middle. So what are some of the, the projects that you're kind of involved in within Balanced Excellence? Like what are some of the, the, the kind of events or some of the aims and objectives that you guys are rolling out? Well, we, we've spoken a lot to USA Hockey. Um, we spoke to AOSSM, which is the biggest surgeon doctors organization probably in the world, their national convention. Um, we speak to high schools, we speak to uh, physical education places, um, city rec groups. And again, what we're trying to do is roll out the fact that let these kids play. I'll give you another example. We're working with a city rec group and the, the guy at the end of the, the meeting said to me, you know, we were playing a, a soccer game in Connecticut and one of the kids came up to me, three of the kids came up to me after the end of the first game and said, Hey coach, it's okay if we don't play in the next game because we want to win. No kid ever said that without prompting from a crazed adult. Kids are naturally movement. I mean, they, they can't, how many times have you heard the kid can't sit still? So what we try to do is say, okay, look, this is a journey. A friend of mine says, you don't, you, you want to slow cook it and not microwave it. But what we want to do, what our goal in balanced excellence is again, always this internalization so that the children own their journey so that they can see the value in the journey so that they can enjoy the journey. And like, there's a lot of people that do a lot of great things with parents, but I tell parents two things right off the bat. One, when you take your child to a game or practice, say, I hope you have fun. And when you take, bring them home, I love you, that's it. Yeah, no, there's some real, gold there in terms of you know what you're saying about owning the journey like how often do we the kids these days you know even at, at sports practice get given the time to say okay you know this is a, a pickup game it's 10 minutes you guys referee it yourselves or you guys decide who, who's playing where or what positions you're going to play in you know so often people get told you're this and you're that and you're a goalkeeper and you're an attacker and you're a defender but how often do we go right we're here just to make sure no one dies, <laughs> but you guys have to run it yourselves. Because there's a lot of, as you said, the leadership skills in that that come out and that we don't necessarily develop because they're never given a chance. A friend of mine sent me this article in the United States, 30% of the children that play youth and high school sports do not meet the minimum standards for activity in high school and youth teams. They don't, and, and you know, like I said, this earn your playing time. Oh my gosh. Like, I, and I didn't know this until after I graduated or until after I retired, but I was at one of my players' weddings and uh, 
you know, they, they cornered me. So obviously something was up. Now I wasn't the coach anymore. So they were going to let me have a, a, a good ribbing. And they said, you know, in one of the fraternities, well, we had these what's called VJ-isms. You've heard a couple so far. Uh, but in another fraternity, they actually put a calendar up how long it would take every player on the team to have been benched. And it never went past February. And we started in September. And they always knew it was play by performance, that there was no, there were no gimmies. And when you get to that level, I mean, what, what a lot of people don't understand in, in these college and pro games is guys get benched all the time. We just, we just don't hear about it unless it's some huge thing. And so the idea that we're letting these kids play, run them out there over and over again is crucial for their life development and sport development. Yeah, I loved it when you described that, you know, the concept of frozen shorts being kids who are basically freezing on the bench. I thought that was great because you see that all the time, you know. I mean, I myself had a story of someone that I know personally who, you know, drove halfway across the country to go and play a, a basketball game and ended up getting, you know, two minutes, the final two minutes. And you just think, what, what's the experience that kid is taking away from that? Is actually, do you know what, this isn't for me or that wasn't worth it or, you know, that's not a positive experience that we want that kid to come back next season. Well, I'll tell you that story. Um, so my wife and I are sitting watching our daughter play soccer. And we sit down at the end away from the parents. And I got a lot of grief in the beginning, but I told them, I'm just not interested in any of the drama. This, this is where we do. And because I was known <clears throat> as, as a college hockey coach in the town, some of the soccer reps knew me because you're not supposed to sit behind the end line, but they never bothered me. And, you know, they, everybody was really good about it. So this one game, this lady comes down and she goes, I hear you're writing a book. And I said, yes, I am. And she said, well, I got to tell you a story. My daughter went to Syracuse so we're about 90 minutes away from them. Last weekend in the rain and the snow and played a lacrosse game tournament, she didn't play the whole weekend, sat on the bench. So, and this is truly the only advice that I will give to your listeners, to the men, is that if one o'clock in the morning and your wife happens to be an elementary kindergarten teacher and gets up at 5.30 in the morning and you come up with this great idea Oh my gosh, frozen shorts for all the kids that sit on the bench needlessly playing new sports and you tap around the shoulder. If you don't see the elbow flying into your ribs way before it happens, you have missed the point. And so that's how frozen shorts was born. And it's now become our charity division of balanced excellence. Hmm. I think that's so important because, I mean, even if you think about it logically, even if you were such a performance oriented coach, you still have to have those kids who are there to provide a training environment or a training group or, you know, so it doesn't, to me, it's kind of productive any way you look at it, you know, whether it's from a recreational inclusive perspective or even from a performance perspective, you still have to have a team that you put out. You can't just have those three kids who get all the game time. So it just doesn't make any sense to me as to how people get wrapped up in that performance mentality. So I took, I took my son to a showcase tournament in Virginia. And I, listen, I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm the first one to admit it. He was the youngest kid on his uh, soccer team. There were division one coaches there. And I, I got to the game, I got to the tournament and I looked around, I went to the head of the tournament and I said, what are we doing here? You know, where, where, are the, where are the coaches? Oh, they'll be here, they'll be here. So I watched 600 kids play. And literally there were three division one, to your point, out of this whole tournament. So when we got home, uh, or we were on the way driving home, I turned off the, 
stereo in the van in, in the video. And of course, my kids and wife know that they're going to get a, a some kind of talking to my father. And I said, we have to have a Santa Claus moment. And both of them immediately said, Dad, I'm 15, I'm 13, Dad, I'm 13. We don't believe in Santa Claus. I said, I know. But that's the Division One scholarship thing. There is no Santa Claus, okay? This thing was a waste of time. We're never doing it again. And you need to just go and have fun. My son was captain of his JV team, co-captain of his JV team, went back and had the best year he ever had. We took the pressure off. My daughter played one more year and said she didn't want to play high competitive soccer. Fine, don't play. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. I've had that same conversation with a friend of mine who's a very good coach and a former professional soccer player himself that said, you know, he took his his son out of an academy setting and just took him back to go and play with his mates because that's what he wanted to do. You know, in order to even get those professionals, you have to keep them in the sport. And if we're turning all these kids off because they're hating practice or they're having to travel for hours and not getting games and all this kind of stuff, then it diminishes the playing pool itself. So even the end game of getting those best players isn't going to happen because as you say, if people are dropping out before the age of 13 or in the following two years, the, the best players are just the ones who are surviving. <laughs> I'm working with a soccer coach, 10 years old. He had his kids playing a flat four at 10. So I asked him afterwards, I said, you know, you, you brought me in and, and, and uh, we're expensive, but I, I promise your viewers we're worth it. If you, if you really want to get rid of that knot in your stomach, and that tenseness when you coach, where you, and I said, I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, this way we can't lose. I said, you know what? There's no reunion for a 10 year old championship soccer team in 20 years. What are we doing here? I said, look at, they're not having any fun. They're, they're not gonna play. They're not gonna continue to play. This is, you know, we're adulting this. Let's just let them play and have fun. And he, he, he wouldn't do it. He said, again, he was one of the guys. And I finally said, well, why did you, why did you hire me? And he goes, well, I've heard a lot about you. And I wanted to know if what I heard was true. And he said, and I said, was it? And he said, yeah, he goes, you're crazy. And I said, well, you know what? I don't want to be sane if this is sane. I mean, he had 22 kids on his team. They all played a little bit, um, but ridiculously little. Um, for 10 year olds. And again, three years, he was out of the sport. Yeah, there's a lot to be answered for there, isn't there? You just think of all those those kids there who, you know, slowly losing the motivation to turn out to, to practice or get to the game day and, and already know I'm not going to play. I'm, you know, just sit here. There's no point warming up. There's no point doing this because it's going to be the same starting 11. I just, had, really. I just had a player sent, an ex-player who uh, I mentored and sent me a thing, he's a dad now. One of his buddies said to him, I got screwed over in youth sports. I'm coaching on this soccer team to make sure that it doesn't happen to my son. 30 years old, he still remembers it clearly, his horrible experience. It's, it's interesting that because I, that's one of the things I think every guest I speak to kind of looks back and has, you know, as you have, coaches that were influential so clearly we we have seen ourselves that coaches we've had have been influential and maybe put us on the path of falling in love with the sport or on the flip side turning it off you know so it makes me wonder what do these coaches think that these kids are going to remember in 10 years time when they're not playing the sport and thinking you know I, that coach I didn't like that coach he never played me you know like what's what's the legacy you're even behind as a coach in that under 10s team 
but they don't. It's a great, it's a great point. But I, I tell them when I get interviewed and do these, I tell them they don't think like that. They're under so much pressure in the moment. They're unhappy with their job. Maybe they're unhappy with their family situation. Maybe they're unhappy financially. This is their one moment in the sun. And if they win, they get to tell people and all this stuff. And it really is, again, a microcosm of society is we've gotten to this immediacy thing instead of valuing the journey. Another VJism is that I tell people, your smartphone isn't a smartphone. It's an answer phone. We, we are getting answers. And what we're doing with this generation is we're confusing answers with knowledge. And that's scary. So now this immediacy in, in my fourth book, does your mind, or my third book, excuse me, does your mind mind what you're doing to your body? We delve into that, what these kids are going, why this immediacy, people think dopamine is like this sexual chemical. It's not, it's, it's just a buzz and it can be positive or negative. And in the brain, because of the firing of the synapses, sorry to bore your, bore your people, but there's a real science to this. And everything we do is science, psychology, and data is that it's six times more likely to be negative. So when you're talking to a child, you have to be at least seven times more positive. It's just science, psychology, and the data supports it. So what's the remedy? So we've obviously discussed you know, a lot of the issues and a lot of the pitfalls and where people are going wrong. Where, how do we turn this around? What, what's the, the bridge to the promised land? My belief is threefold. One, we have to embrace chaos. Just embrace it. Which means at its pure level, 12 and under equal play. Stop this, he doesn't practice enough, I do more. 12, because puberty changes everything. Pre-puberty, it's equal play. And then the third one on this, as it's trying to, to reinvent itself, as I like to say, yeah, we're, we are trying to reinvent the wheel. This one's too expensive. Doesn't ride right for a lot of people. But the third part of this is that we just have to understand how important it is for a child to be a child and just let them play play just fuels so much of their life so many benefits nobody ever got better sitting on the bench but we've got to let them play yeah I think that's it it's really that and so what what we do then rob is that and when i speak i tell the coaches find one other coach that you trust don't try and change this big thing you can't it'll overwhelm you find one other coach in a game you're going to coach against that you trust Again, back to my trust thing. And the two of you do no coaching during the game to the players on the pitch, the rink, the court, the field. I don't care whatever you want to call it. Nothing. You don't say a word. When they come off, you don't say anything. You make it equal play, but you reward people with positives. Again, the seven to one during that game. Watch how much better. Every coach that we've gotten to do that has told us that they're stunned at how much better the kids play. We're not another BJ. We're not building rockets or curing cancer here. They're kids. Let's embrace it, not take advantage of it. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot to be said as well. Like, you know, as you said, that kind of formative years, the, some of the subliminal message we're sending to kids by this kind of overcoaching and over you know, information of, do you know what? Don't play it safe. Don't make mistakes because you don't want the, the spotlight of negativity shining on you. So just hide in the background. Don't take too many risks. Just, you know, 
like that guy. I don't want to lose. I'll play four at the back because that's the safest way not to lose. That's not, no one goes out to play sport not to lose. It's, it, I don't see how it's any fun. And so I even had this one guy go, okay, there's 60 definitions of fun, VJ. What's yours? I said, you can't change everybody. You want to start with one little group because we're a huge copycat. Again, what I told you earlier about staying in line. One group, and this is what we do, one group, one team, and an organization, or as they say in Canada, organization. And like we would take a, a soccer coach from England and a, say a, a, just a U12, because we're, we're talking about 12 year olds, and we teach them. It's a 20 it's a step process. We would teach them the process, but we would tell them it's not going to work unless you find another coach. And then with the other problem, it's a huge problem, Rob, that we go after and try to solve is that we then stay with the coach because I said we're expensive. We stay with the coach through one traditional season. We work with a little cross guy. He got eliminated from his high school playoffs, called me next week with a travel question. I said, you don't get it. You don't get it. Get away from lacrosse. Stay away. Don't do anything. And so we get those two. And then those two play 10 teams. So now we've reached 20 teams. And the grassroots of it, which is exactly how it started to get out of control, we're then taking that and using it against them. No, it's good. That's, that's solid advice. I think that's it's interesting because you're seeing some initiatives similar to that. Like I know in a, a lot of uh, academy soccer in the UK, they often hold like ma matches where parents aren't allowed to come for that exact reason, as we've, we've kind of said before, because they want to keep this, the sidelines quiet and not having 30 different voices. But, you know, to have that, that silent coaching side of things is another, another level of that challenge. A child makes three decisions a second when they're playing team sports. Why should the coach or the parents yell? And I coached 451 college games. A ref never lost a single game. And if you talk to the referees, and I have, they all say the best attribute of a ref is experience. So as adults, we're actually making the refs work worse by yelling at them. They quit and we get the new ones in. So we're, we're, we're self-fulfilling. Our problem. So can I tell you another story? My, yeah, I, I'm not boring you guys. Well, we'll find out with how many views you get. So this is how I end all my talks, my presentations, my seminars, my workshops. Molly was 10 years old. She decided to play soccer. Her older brother played AAU basketball. Her eldest brother played elite ODP soccer. He'd seen it all. So before the first game, the coach set the cones out and Molly is right on his butt and she's got his, her brother's baseball hat turned around backwards. Finally, the coach stops and the coach is a really good guy. And he says, Molly, what's the problem? And she said, coach, I play center mid. And the coach got down on one knee and said, oh, Molly, everybody plays every position. We, you know, we try to make sure if unless goalie because it's safety, but everybody could get to play everything. And he kept going. Molly wouldn't leave him. And there's nothing more determined and cuter than a little 10-year-old girl with pigtails following an adult trying to get his attention. So finally, he stopped. And he said, Molly, he said, I, I can't guarantee you that you're going to play center mid. Why do, you, why do you insist on playing center mid? And she turned her little hat back around. And she, he was on one knee. And he looked him right in the eye. And she said, well, you know, coach, it's like this. My dad's on one side of the pitch telling everybody that I'm going to be a division one soccer player, yelling instructions every second at me. You're on the other side yelling even more instructions 
and trying to get us to win a game that we don't even know what we're going to do. So center mid is as far away as I can get from both of you. Ah, <laughs> oh, geez. It's, uh, yeah, you can see that. You see that a lot though, don't you? Down the local park, you can see getting it from both it's only sides. It's funny because it's true. No, definitely. It is 100%. And, and it's sad that it happens more frequently than we probably like to admit. It's more common than uncommon. And so that's what we say. Our whole program is based on we get an organization who's frustrated and they give us two of their coaches that are frustrated. And then we work with them and then we teach them to teach the other by modeling. Yeah, which is the, the best way. And you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who you know, are kind of suggesting that actually, you know, going to a coaching course where you kind of get your certificate and then are left alone for a year, it's not an effective way of, of producing change or people, you know, adapting their practice. Whereas, as you said, you know, that kind of modeling and having, you know, coaches that agree to meet up and say, this is the way we're going to do things. And, you know, building it one person at a time is a far more uh, effective long-term strategy. We were working with a six-year-old soccer coach organization hired us and uh i mean she wasn't six-year-old she coached at six-year-old <laughs> and uh brought the president i said listen i'll do it on one on one condition that you come with me and uh so i went and asked my daughter i said you know do we have a stopwatch and she said dad you you, you have a stopwatch on your phone and i said well who knew everybody but me obviously i can barely turn the thing on and off so i said how do i set it up so we go over there they were playing four eight minute quarters. So I brought the phone for all the action. I let the, I let the clock run every time it stopped. And I had him count the amount of instructions that were yelled. These are six years old. In 32 minutes, they played 10 minutes and 36 seconds of soccer. In the first 16 minutes of the game, the children, six years old on the field, were yelled 37 instructions. It's all your viewers need to know right there. And that is the rule, not the exception. And so the six-year-old, the coach got mad at me because I just wanted some chaos. So she warned the parents that they could get hit by balls. And I said, okay. And then she got right in my face and said, I was hired to coach this team. So that's exactly what I'm going to some fragile egos kicking about isn't there wow just, just wow and, and, I, and I, I have no ill will feeling to any of these people another vjism is i'm surprised that people are surprised that it's like this how did you think it was going to turn out how did you think all this specialization all this yelling all this money how did you really think this was going to turn out if not just like this it's funny because we like to pay a lot of lip service to being athlete centered and all these kind of buzzwords. But at the end of the day, if the kids are having fun, doesn't doesn't matter how many buzzwords you stick around it. You're not athlete centered at all. Like, like I said, we recruited so hard on character and it cheapens the game when, you know, like we're playing a game, another game. Now this is college. Um, so I'm watching warmups with uh, my assistant coach, female assistant coach. Stat statistician, whatever, Allie. And I said, that kid's a jerk. 
in warmups. She goes, what? I go, yeah. And there was a two-year school that we, we needed. He was a center. I said, I can't have that kid on the team. He got four penalties and got ejected. So their coach put up with that, that behavior. And I'm not criticizing him. I mean, he's got this roster. He's got this team. He's under pressure to, to win. He is. And, but my point is, and I told the college, I told the high school, everywhere that I've been, this is how we're going to do it. It's all about the journey. Okay. Only one team wins the last game of the year. So what we're going to do is we're going to create an environment that these kids can blossom, feel safe, but still be held accountable because I want to win. I do want to win. But this to me, we, I called our newest presentation is called the art of winning the Augusta approach. And it's named after uh, Tiger Woods um, uh, playing the masters at Augusta. They interviewed him about it. And he said, I'm just trying to put myself in a position in the back nine on Sunday to win Augusta. That's what we do at Balance Excellence. We put you in a position where you can play to win at the back nine of Augusta if luck and everything goes. But otherwise, we're teaching you so much value in the journey that maybe you're not going to be so upset if you don't win. Mm. Now, that's a massive point because, as you said, you know, only 1% get to that college level, only 1% of 1% get to the pros, and actually only one team gets to win. So if we measure our, you know, if every coach on the planet is only measuring their success by winning that final game or, you know, how many players are the 1% of 1%, then we're all absolute failures. <laughs> and actually, we should be assessing our success with a different criteria. Look, in the bottom line, and this gets me in a lot of trouble, my wife tells me that I shouldn't do it in my presentations, but of course I still do. Nobody knows how to win. Nobody. Nobody knows how to win. Las Vegas wouldn't exist. Uh, Jerry Jones is a famous owner of the Dallas Cowboys, recently said that he would pay whatever it took. And I tell people this. He built a $2 billion mausoleum, I mean a stadium to himself in Dallas. Do you not think if somebody knew how to win that he would have that guy there? And so again, what we do with balanced excellence is we tell them, well, if nobody knows how to win and we all want to win, what's the key, BJ? What's the secret? And I tell them basic fundamentals because every team, when you get into a slump, you'll hear the coach say the exact same thing. Geez, I don't know what's going wrong, but we're going to go right back to fundamentals. Well, then why not do the fundamentals in the beginning? <laughs> it's very true it's very i finally true. got him to laugh i was an ex-professional comic it took me 40 minutes so where can people find out more about balanced excellence and about your kind of approach and some of your thoughts and your vjisms where can they go to find out more about what you're doing um well you can buy the books they're on amazon um stop the tsunami in youth sports achieving balanced excellence and health while embracing the value of play for fun the second book uh, is Less is More, The Truth About Youth in High School Sports. And the third one, as I said, is Does Your Mind Mind What You're Doing to Your Body? You can email me. It's BJ, V as in Vincent, J as in John, BJ at balancedexcellence.com. Our office number is, uh, we're, in the, we're in New York State, in the United States, 585-743-1020. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today, VJ. It's been great to hear. And it's always good to tap into experienced coaches who've been there, done it and got the t-shirt and, 
you know, have, have uh, got a lot to to draw on in terms of experience and anecdotes and analogies. So it's been fantastic chatting to you and I wish you all the I'm best. You the enjoyed the crazy. And I hope more people take up your mantle and, and take you up on what you're doing. Thank you. Anytime anybody wants to talk to us, we're feel free to give us a call. We, we do a lot of interviews, but we make sure anybody that wants to interview us, we make time for, especially guys like you that really want to help the kids. It truly, it makes my heart beat much faster. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could do two simple things for us. First, if you could share this episode with another coach, teacher, or parent. And secondly, if you could leave a podcast review on your chosen podcast platform. This helps us get this resource out to more people like you who will benefit from this information.